No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so to open the book and its seven seals. Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals. For thou wast slain and dispurchased for God with thine own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, Holy Father, we bow before you, thanking you that we can even approach you, but thank you for the merits of Christ's blood that allow us to boldly come to a throne of grace to find help. And we thank you for the Spirit who indwells us, who bears witness to our human spirits that we become children of God. And if children heirs, we look forward, Father, to all that you have before us in the years ahead. We look most assuringly for the blessed hope when Christ will come and take his people home. Be by death or rapture, may we live our life well, invested to the very end, that Christ in us, the hope of glory, might be expressed in every way into his honor. So help me, my Father, today. Fill me, give me the words that I've studied so hard to prepare. Give me the words that I might say what you put in my mind and heart, that together the church might be edified, protected, and built up. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the very last chapter of the book of the Revelation. It's the last book, the last chapter. If you are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this great book. It's called in the opening verse, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the official title of this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. Now, this for me has been a great experience to work through this magnificent book, especially these last two chapters as we've been studying the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the place that someday God's people will go. We've been in this book almost three years, but let me just say, next week's sermon, you can see we're not done today, we have two more verses. It may very well be the most important sermon out of the whole book that I've preached. So don't miss it. Don't get messed up by the time change. Be here next week. And I'm not sure I'll have that many slides next week. So make sure you bring a Bible. It will be absolutely critical. Now, as you're finding the text of Scripture... Ask yourself this question, are the 66 books of the Bible all that we need, or do we need something else, some vision, some dream, some direct word from God, some sequel to the 66 books we have, or do we have a completed, sufficient revelation? When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said in Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us that we are of, we are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation for Christ's church was laid by two early New Testament offices called apostles and prophets. There are no more prophets or apostles today. That's not to say that the gift of preaching doesn't still exist or that their gift of apostleship 
that focuses in planning new churches doesn't exist. But the office of apostle and prophet were foundational New Testament offices, and they laid the foundation through the preaching of the foundation himself, Christ Jesus, giving us the New Testament church. And so Paul is reminding us, like he reminds the Corinthians, that God, through the foundation laid through the apostles, has given us a completed book. If you remember Jude, which is that short little book right before the Revelation, Jude speaks of the apostles' doctrine that has been delivered once for all. And so he says, we are to contend earnestly for the faith, not for faith, but for the faith. It's articular, what we call the body of truth known as the Bible. We are to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, for the last 2,000 years, we have not been waiting for another word from God. We have a completed word from God. And God wants us to understand that the provision of the Scriptures, called here the foundation, given through the preaching of the foundation, Christ Jesus himself is all that we need and we don't need anything else. So here's John. He is the very last living apostle, and he writes the very last God-breathed book of Scripture. He puts down, as it were, the very final block there in the foundation. And since the book of Revelation deals with the entire sweep of history, from the close of the apostolic age all the way into eternity future, to alter or to add to it would be to change what God has given. So the revelation, if you remember, starts with seven churches that were in existence during John's lifetime. And he preaches and reveals to them God's plan all the way into eternity future. So if anyone today writes today something they call the Word of God, they are intruding into the realm of coverage that starts with the foundation of the church, Christ, all the way into eternity future. The Bible is concluded with the book of Revelation. And so John is about to deliver a warning, and it's to would-be prophets, it's to cultists, but it's also to believers to be alert, to watch, to be careful. It's one of the roles of an elder. He is to guard the church. He is to protect the church. Why? Because people sneak in unaware, unnoticed. It's going to happen. They will come from amongst yourselves, Paul will say to the Ephesian elders, so you need to guard the church. And so he is giving us a warning about the divine authority of Scripture and how it is not to be tampered with. Now today, we're going to look in detail at two verses of Scripture, verses 18 and 19, but to get a flavor for the context, I want us to begin reading in verse 14. Follow along in your Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone 
who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, we've covered a lot of territory here in the Revelation. We've traveled from seven churches in the first century all the way through the second coming of Christ, through his millennial reign upon the earth, through the great white throne judgment, to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem that will someday serve as its capital. Now, last time, if you were here, we examined the final invitation found in all of the Bible, an invitation for the lost person to come to Jesus. Well, today we find the final warning found in the Scripture. And it's not just for the self-proclaimed prophet, but also for the church to refuse anyone that would change the authority and the finality of this book. And so the warning is found here in verses 18 and 19, and it's a very serious warning. And the last apostle, writing the last book of the Bible and the timeline of inspired Scripture, is reminding us that the Bible is a completed, closed book. Don't tamper with it. That's the warning label written here at the end. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, I want you to see that is it a very serious thing to tamper with God's Word. And so first, I want us to consider the warning of adding to God's Word, the warning of adding to His words. We read now in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. I think it's important, and I think it's significant that the Bible ends with this affirmation of its truthfulness. And so if you remember, to bring it into the immediate context, look up in verse 6 there on the page of your Bible, 22 verse 6, and he, this angel of God, said to me, John, these words are faithful and true. This is the angel who in verse 1 gave him an interior tour of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. He showed him the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And it's a place that someday God's people will go. And when your loved ones have died, they are already in this place. And so this angel who's been revealing the new Jerusalem to John, one of the angels who had one of the seven bowls of wrath, continues to speak to him, and he reminds him that what he has delivered is both faithful and true. In other words, this is not too good to be true. This word is faithful and true. And so throughout the Revelation, more than any other book in all of the Holy Scripture, we are admonished to study and obey it because these words are faithful and true. So here in verse 6 of this chapter, the angel proceeds why these words are faithful and true. You don't want to miss this because this is critical to what the argument here is in verses 18 and 19. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So God's angel tells us that the Lord who inspired the spirits of the prophets, that is, the writers of the Old Testament, has now used his angel to give him this message. Now, how did God inspire the spirits of the prophets? Well, he's referring to that human spirit 
that was moved along by the Holy Spirit of God. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, if you were to pull up a computer concordance, you would discover that some 3,800 times it either says, God says, or thus saith the Lord. Thousands of times the Bible affirms its own inspiration, which, of course, is not proof in and of itself that it is inspired. If you say, well, the Bible's inspired because it claims to be inspired, the skeptic will say that's a circular argument. However, if the Scripture did not say it was inspired then you would have a real problem on your hand. And Revelation 21.6, like 2 Peter 1, are two critically important texts of Scripture that tells us that the Scripture was not written by men alone, but men who were moved by the Spirit of God in their spirits. Moved by the Holy Spirit, they are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, what they are writing is the God-breathed words of Scripture. God, out of His mouth gave us his holy word. And so throughout the word of God, a prophet will often say, the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and rightly so, because the scripture is the God-breathed breath of God put on paper. These are not the thoughts and ideas of men. This is the word of God. And since God is infallible, the Bible is infallible, and since God cannot err, neither can the scriptures. This is why Peter, in his first epistle, refers to the Bible as true as the pure, unadulterated Word of God, because they were men moved by the Spirit, spoke from God. And so without stammer or stutter, I can say that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, internal Word of God without a single error in it, because they were men moved. And he uses here, interestingly, a nautical term in the Greek New Testament. It described the moving of wind into the sails of a ship. And so Peter knew that these Old Testament prophets that he's describing had their sails up, that they were being moved along by the Spirit of God. Just as wind would move a sailboat, so these men were being moved by God. It's a beautiful picture of inspiration. And so here in verse 6, the angel is relating the same truth. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. This angel from God is telling the apostle John that while he is not a prophet, he is being used by God to give this message, and the message he is giving is no less faithful, no less true, no less inspired by God. And so Paul reminds us in Galatians that the law was mediated through angels. And in this case, God is mediating the word from Christ to the angel here to the apostle John. He is saying that what I am giving you is just as inspired as God who moved upon these prophets in their spirits to give us the Tanakh. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. And so the warning here given in both verses 18 and 19 is based on the fact that the message that is given is the very breath and word of God itself. These words are faithful and true. 
And so we studied some weeks back that the prophecy is not to be sealed up. It is to be proclaimed. It is to be taught. Now, don't forget who is speaking the words of verse 18. We know it's the Lord Jesus. Look back at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. That speaks of his divine human person. We studied that last time. <clears throat> he is the root of David in that he precedes David, and yet he is the descendant of David. He is the eternal I am who took on our humanity. He is the bright morning star. So Jesus is speaking in verse 16. Then in verse 17, we saw the spirit and the bride speak. And now again in verse 18, Jesus once again pulls into the conversation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. We know that this is the Lord Jesus speaking because of what we read in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Now, this is kind of interesting to think about because throughout the Revelation, the Lord Jesus has sent his angel to testify. But now because of the seriousness of the warning, Jesus does so in person. If you're the head of a corporation or a company or maybe even the senior pastor of a church, there are times when you don't want anyone else to say it. It needs to come from you, the point man that God placed over the church with those elders. Why? Because you don't want it to be miscommunicated. This is the chief shepherd of the church, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what he is about to say is so critically important, he doesn't even want to say it through his angel because he wants to underscore the importance of what is going to be said. Now, let me say that the Scripture in John's day was like a treasure. They treasured the Scripture. They guarded it. They protected it. They copied it like we have guarded and protected the Declaration of Independence and might copy it in turn. And so I raise that to say that some people think that the threat here, the warning here, is against the copyists. That is, someone who would copy this book of Scripture, that they are not to copy it incorrectly or they come under a serious plague. Now, let me just say parenthetically, all of you have heard the critics say, well, you Christians say the Bible is the Word of God, but it has been translated so many different times, copied over centuries, that what you have today can no longer be trusted. It is no longer God's infallible Word. Now, while it is true we do not have the original manuscripts because it's an ancient book and paper will not last that long, we can say that the authenticity of the Bible has been protected by God himself. And we know that not only through the copies of Scripture that has been made, but through writers outside of Holy Scripture who recorded Scripture. For instance, through the church fathers alone, every single verse, with the exception of 11 can be reproduced through the writings of the church fathers. And when you see them quote various sections of Scripture and you look at the manuscripts we have, we see there's a beautiful match. Every single verse, and that does not challenge us because this is what God promised. Remember in Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words. 
as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. God promised to preserve and to protect his word. Now, sometimes people don't want to believe that the Bible is reliable because they don't like the implications of the scripture if it is reliable. And so I was in a physician's office this week and he was cutting on me and and he began to debate with me over the reliability of scripture. You know that Noah's Ark thing, he can't be trusted and therefore the Bible can't be trusted. Now, there's probably a backstory to that, and we didn't get that far. But I want to tell you, my friend, people attack the Bible because they don't want to believe in its reliability. But listen, there was such a careful process that was done by scribes in the copying of Scripture. For instance, when they made Old Testament books and New Testament books, they had to use clean animal skins. In fact, they had to use even a clean animal skin to bind the manuscripts. Each column could have no less than 48 lines and no more than 60 lines. The ink they used was of a particular recipe, and when a scribe copied the Scripture, he had to verbalize each and every word before he wrote it down. And then they would take the copy of Scripture, and they would count all the letters, and they would find the middle word and the middle letter and the middle paragraph, And if the middle paragraph and the middle sentence and the middle word and the middle letter did not match in the copy, then they would start all over again. In fact, they revered the Scripture so much, they wouldn't even destroy it. They wouldn't throw it away. They would either bury it in a Jewish cemetery. They would store it in what's called a geniza, which is a Hebrew word that literally means a hiding place. And then those scriptures that were the final clean copies, they kept in a very sacred place. In fact, today, the Jewish people continue to revere the scripture. So here I was at the Western Wall, and I took this picture. It's called an ark, and these are just some Orthodox Jews, and they rolled out that particular wooden structure. It's called an ark where they kept the scripture. And if you're facing the wall and you went left, you'd go into a tunnel and you're up against this wall that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. And they have all these arcs where the Scripture is kept because it is revealed. So we're not surprised because the Scriptures have always been revered as a treasure that God has protected them. So in 1947, a shepherd boy was out in the desert and he came across this cave I'm sure as he was herding sheep, he wanted to entertain himself. The days were long, and so he was throwing some rocks and seeing if he could get it in the hole of this, which is called cave number one. And on the occasion, the rock went in, and he heard something break. And he went into that cave, and he found these pots. And in this particular cave, cave number one, they found an entire copy of the book of Isaiah. Now, this is in a place called Qumram. It's down by the Dead Sea. It's a very dry and arid section of Israel. It's hot. It's dry. But God used that to preserve His Word. And so when they found this copy, and by the way, they found fragments or portions of every single book of the Old Testament with the exception of Esther. And maybe that is yet to be found because they are still discovering fragments here and there. But when they found the completed copy of the book of Isaiah, remember, prior to this, they had a copy that was 900 years after Christ. 
900 AD, produced by the Masoretes. Now they have a copy of Scripture that is at least 100 years before Christ, a thousand-year difference. And when they copied or when they analyzed every single word and every single letter in the two copies, the 900 AD and the 100 BC copy, there was only a difference in 17 letters. And the changes were stylistic insertions like a conjunction or the spelling of a word that had changed. And so in English, in America, we used to spell the word Savior, S-A-V-I-O-U-R, like the Brits still do. Today, we spell it S-A-V-I-O-R. And so what did it do? It authenticated how God's Word has been protected. And so what I'm trying to say is that this warning that John is giving in the first century clearly is not to the copyists because that would not apply in that culture, much less the context itself makes it very clear that that's not what is in view. Look again at verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears. Circle the word hear. Now remember, this is pre-printing press. And so there would be readers in the church. You didn't come to church with a copy of your Bible. No believer in the first century could imagine what you have. And they would not understand why you don't carry it with you on Sunday morning. They would be blown away to have a copy in their lap of all 66 books. But what he is doing, remember, this book is being written to seven different churches. And he recognizes that there will be people who will come into the church potentially false teachers who could alter the book of Revelation. By the time he writes the Revelation, and Jesus sends seven epistles or letters to seven different churches, each epistle is authored by Jesus himself, he is already admonishing them of false teachers who'd come into the church. So if you remember to the church at Pergamum, an otherwise healthy church, Jesus said, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And even as great as the church at Pergamum was, there were still some things that needed to be corrected and to concern the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans because they were false teachers. Now, teaching or doctrine is important. Today, people say, well, I don't want to learn doctrine. Doctrine is emblematic of who God is. Forty-five times in the New Testament, we are exerted, exhorted to learn sound doctrine. You say, well, doctrine just divides. Yes, it does. Truth from error, true believers from false believers. Now, sometimes when people rebel against sound doctrine, the reason they are rebelling is for the simple reason is that they want to justify their own wicked behavior. They don't want to believe in a certain way because they want to behave in a certain way. And so they find a church or a teacher that will make them feel better and tell them what they want to hear. But what we teach ourselves and what we teach our children and grandchildren and those that God has entrusted us to disciple is very, very important. And so Christ knows that if you allow the truth to be mixed with error, then it will destroy the testimony of the church. And so Jesus, once again, is speaking about the importance of not perverting the book of Revelation. That's what's in view here. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. What book? The book of the Revelation. Now, both Christians and non-Christians 
believers and unbelievers need to hear this admonishment. Listen, there are cults today that have new revelation. Every single cult is built on some revelation, some vision, some extra writing, some extra book that goes beyond the 66 books of the Bible. And so Joseph Smith tells us, and the Mormons tell us in their commercials of another testament of the quote-unquote 67th book of the Bible. And when you, as a believer, come and you say, well, now, wait a minute. God said in the Revelation, if anyone adds to these, he will add to the plagues which are written in this book. And they say, well, that just applies to the book of Revelation. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have another book from the Bible. And then they will be quick because they are trained well to quote some other passages. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2, Moses plainly said, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you. You might want to put that verse in the margin. Nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Or a near identical statement in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it. Or a Mormon missionary might even take you to the book of Proverbs chapter 30. Every word, Solomon writes, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. And so the Mormons, along with other cultists, will tell you that, well, look, we're not adding or subtracting to the Revelation any more than we're adding and subtracting to all the books that have been written since Moses and since Solomon. And so they would argue there's nothing wrong with their having a 67th book. But what they do is they take the writings that I just quoted from Moses and what I just quoted from Solomon out of their context. You can make the Bible mean whatever you want if you take it out of context. You can change its meaning. And contextually, God is speaking of ethical, moral standards, and that when they are ignored or rewritten or soft-pedaled or changed, you are inviting trouble with God himself. And so the reader of the first five books given by Moses, like Proverbs, understood that they were not to ignore, but they were to obey the moral commands of God. And this kind of warning, I suppose you could add to every book of the Bible, because every single book of the Bible has some kind of moral dictate in it. Again, in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So Jesus is giving a warning to everyone who will read or hear the book of Revelation not to tamper with its truth. And again, contextually, he's talking about the words of the prophecy of this book. Of what book? The book of Revelation. Now, if you were here for the very first message almost three years ago, we learned that there's a firm date for the book of Revelation. It's not a blur. It's not a wonder. It's not an about. It's a firm, specific date. It was written in 95 A.D. You know, there are some people, we also studied this in the very first message, who interpret the book of Revelation as historical. They would say the whole book was fulfilled by 70 A.D. with the exception of the second coming of Christ. Well, listen, what they're basically saying is three chapters of Revelation are prophecy, not 18 chapters, as we would affirm. Revelation was a prophecy, 
And it was written by a prophet, John, who has given the revelation from Christ to this angel in such that in the opening chapter, he writes, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, whether scripture is written by Moses or Solomon or John or any other book, the command is not to add or take away to it. Now, you might be thinking, well, why didn't God give a similar warning to Acts or Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians? Well, God strategically placed this warning in the last book of the last chapter of the last paragraph of the Bible. This is the end of God's revelation. This warning is at the end of the New Testament, which is at the end of all scriptural revelation, and therefore it applies and covers everything that would be given thereafter. And knowing especially how much people would want to read the revelation, I mean, you would think about it, preacher is always asked by the new Christian, can you teach me the book of Revelation? It's the first book they want to study. And if it's announced that a pastor is going to preach the book of Revelation, even unbelievers will come because they're fascinated and intrigued by the book and its futuristic uh, theme. So God surely knew that this would be the most assaulted, the most twisted, the most misrepresented and misunderstood and abused book. And so he especially puts it here at the end of Scripture. But remember, the very last book to be written by the very last apostle is the Revelation written by John. And so to add or take away from the Revelation is to take away from the whole of Scripture because this is the final word. It's a well-established fact that this was the last book, and that's why it's placed right at the end of the canon of Scripture. But apart from that, think your way through this. This book begins in John's lifetime, and he carries us all the way into eternity future. And so he covers the whole realm of life all the way into eternity future, and to come with some new teaching, some new doctrine that would intrude with that timeline would be to add or subtract to what God has said. So it's not by accident. Here in the final book, at the conclusion of the Bible, it would be so appropriate for him to give this warning. And he affirms everyone who hears. Again, the public reading of Scripture, Paul said, was not to be ignored because you couldn't go home typically and take out a manuscript and pour over it. You had to be a rather wealthy person. You would go to a particular spot, a locale where the scriptures were found, and there was usually someone supervising, even your opening up the scroll. And so they recognized that if a false teacher came into the church, he could easily stand up and he could manipulate as a teacher what God had given, just as they had manipulated the teachings of the Nicolaitans and brought them into the church, just as they took the uh, teachings of Jezebel and the church at Thyatira and brought them into the church. And so he's really giving a warning to the church who would be dependent on pastors or teachers who would stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And if someone wanted to change it, add to it, subtract to it, manipulate it, then the church could be very susceptible now, let's consider this as it relates to our day. We have would-be prophets in our day and ignorant Christians because they have no longer learned sound doctrine. 
we have had 40 years of the Bill Heibel, Rick Warren movement that said the church on Sunday morning should be geared towards the unbeliever. How false that is. It's just the opposite in God's Word in the pastoral epistles. The church service is never to be geared first and foremost for the unbeliever. It is first and foremost to be geared for the believer, whether it's equipping him to share the gospel or teaching the scripture. Will there be unbelievers present? Of course, that's assumed in 1 Corinthians 14. And every week, God in his grace and mercy entrusts to us unbelieving hearts who are searching and looking and wanting to find answers. And Paul says, when the word of God is preached, the unbeliever will fall on his face and he will worship God. But we have would-be prophets in our day like Mormons, and we have ignorant Christians, and we have people who stand up in churches just like this, who say, well, let me tell you what God said to me. God spoke to me. And they want to give you what God basically told them because you're some poor, spiritually impoverished slob and they are some spiritually elite person and so you need to hear what they say. And so Beth Moore has a vision that she shares. You can see it on YouTube where she sees Jesus looking at his church, directly telling her that Roman Catholics are to be one with evangelical Christians. Now, if you know Roman Catholic doctrine, then you know that it is antithetical to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church denies the gospel. There's a lot of truth in there, but one of the master strategies, schemes of the devil is to mix error with truth. And so Beth Moore either does not understand the gospel or she is grossly ignorant of Catholicism. 500 years ago, at the Council of Trent, they issued a series of anathemas. An anathema is a Greek word that carries the essence of being damned to hell. They gave over 100 anathemas against Bible-believing Christians who taught that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and that good works do not in any way help get into heaven. That was against papal instruction of the day. And they reaffirmed, by the way, the Council of Trent at Vatican I, Vatican II, and again with the College of Cardinals in 2010. Yet, 2 John 10 and 11 tells me this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And their position has not changed since the Council of Trent. Listen, it is a documented fact. It's called the Inquisition. They murdered 50 million born-again Christians for believing that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. That's not some made-up mystery. That's history. And yet Beth Moore has this vision that Jesus has said that we are to be one with Roman Catholics. That's either a bad case of indigestion or a figment of her imagination or it's some demonic deception. Mark Batterson, he writes a book called The Circle Maker. He was on Focus on the Family some time ago, and I called Focus 
spoke to the national programmer. I said, look, you need to come out and correct this. This guy is a heretic. You haven't vetted him very well. Go on to his website. He's got gay groups meeting on his campus affirming the LGBTQ lifestyle. He uses all these authors that are so far from sound biblical theology. No, we're not going to do that. Then we're not going to play you anymore. I'm not talking about James Dobson. I'm talking about the organization that took over after Dobson was outed. So this guy, Mark Batterson, writes a book called The Circle Maker, and it's supposedly a new methodology on how you ought to pray, and it actually comes from the teachings of a mystic a hundred years ago. And so people are taught to draw either a mental circle or a literal physical circle around what it is that they want, and then they are to command God to give it to them. And so he writes in his book, that this kind of prayer will, quote, show you how to claim God-given promises, pursue God-sized dreams, and seize God-ordained opportunities. You will learn how to draw prayer circles around your family, your job, your problems, and your goals. Now, I think this book has become so popular because it makes direct communication the normative experience of the believer. But nigh, where was circle prayer for 2,000 years of church history? We must have been a deficient body if this is something that we need. But what he is teaching is sub-biblical, it is unbiblical, it is extra-biblical. And by the way, I know some people who have said, well, you shouldn't name names. Maybe you should call out their false teaching, but you shouldn't name their names. May I remind you that as a shepherd, God has called me to protect his sheep. May I remind you that Romans 16, 7 says you are to note them. May I remind you of the biblical precedence when Paul calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus and when John and 3 John calls out Diotrephes. No, we are to guard the church of Christ. And so Beth Moore, like Batterson, often speaks of God whispering to our spirits in that inner quiet impression that God gives you that we are to follow. Listen, we are not to expect direct messages from heaven where God says, where we say, well, let me tell you what God told me. That's what Sarah Young writes in her best-selling book, Jesus Calling. Let me read to you from the introduction. She said, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Really? This book's not sufficient? I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. Listen, if that is what was happening, then she was writing Scripture. If Jesus was speaking directly to her and she is writing it down, then really what she is writing in Scripture, and as a result, she's adding to the Bible. And so you get all these people who come very dangerously close to ignoring the warning when they say, well, God said to me, and he said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so Beth Moore in one of her tweets writes this. There is a time to give up, and there is a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels a whole lot more like a time to give up. The only difference is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, try again. We hear this all the time, that God is speaking through the still, small voice 
which is really putting that still small voice in the same authority as the Word of God. But if you are with me, in my series on Elijah years ago, we learned that this still small voice was not some internal inner impression. It was an audible impression that Elijah literally has to go outside of the cave to hear. And of course, it was at a time before the canon of Scripture was done. And so God spoke in many portions and in many ways through dreams, through visions. And he spoke to Elijah in an ordinary, everyday experience. But it was an audible word from God Almighty, not some inner impression where you can say, well, God told me you are on very shaky ground when you make statements like that. God is saying, listen, don't tamper with this book. Now, the way some people approach and interpret and apply the Bible, they are on very dangerous ground. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think God can speak directly to me? And I would say, yes. If you want God to speak directly to you, then read his word. And if you want him to speak audibly, then read it out loud. Charles Haddon Spurgeon so wisely said, I have little confidence in those persons who speak of having direct revelation from the Lord. His word is so full, so perfect, that for God to make any fresh revelation to you is quite needless. To do so would be to put a dishonor upon the perfection of that word. Jesus here is speaking of the completeness of the Bible. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. John is not saying, listen, maybe you study the Bible and you come up with a, a different meaning. No, he's talking about people who purposely distort God's word. Someone reads the book of Revelation and they come to the conclusion that there's going to be a pre-tribulational rapture. That is, the church will be taken up before the seven-year tribulation period begins. Someone else reads it, and after they read it, they come to the conclusion of a post-tribulational rapture, namely that the rapture happens after the seven-year tribulation. Well, is that person brought under some kind of a course, a curse? Not at all. He's not referring to someone who is uh, misinterpreting the Scripture. He is referring to someone who is trying to twist and distort the Scripture. The truth is, is that the post-tribulationist has the gospel just like the pre-tribulationist, and he'll go to heaven too. He'll just go to heaven a little sooner than he thought he would, and he won't be complaining, I promise you. But John is not talking about misunderstanding the Word of God. He's talking about twisting the Word of God. And so this is a warning. And when you reject the truth, you become open to error. That's the principle we've studied earlier in this book, why it is that millions upon millions across the earth will be deceived by the Antichrist. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, because they refuse the truth, they believe a lie. That's what happened to Joseph Smith. He had the plan of salvation clearly taught to him. But he was a profligate, he was an immoral man, he had over 40 wives. So what does he do? He writes a book that justifies his own immoral, wicked behavior, not to mention in this other testament, he denies the deity of our Lord and Savior. The same could be said of Muhammad's Quran, 
which states that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but he was taken up into heaven, that there was someone else other than Jesus who was on the cross. That's a manipulation. And they, of course, in the Quran, deny the deity of our Lord and Savior. They say he's only a prophet, but Muhammad is the final and the last prophet. The same could be said of the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, or the Hindu Vedas, or the Upanishads, or the writings of Confucius, or Buddha, or any others that you could think of. These are all examples of people who are adding to the Scripture. Remember the warning that Paul gave to the church at Galatians, Galatians 1. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It's the Greek word anathema. It's the same word the Roman Catholics used to, to, to shell a hundred anathemas against Protestant evangelicals of their day. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Paul was preaching the true gospel, and he's had these so-called other gospels that are not gospels at all are to be rejected. And so what I find so fascinating with the Revelation is it opens with a promise of a blessing, but it ends with the warning of a curse of anyone who would dare tamper with it. I'm not saying that God cannot lead your life, but what I am saying based on this passage of Scripture is that these so-called fresh revelations that people today, more and more, who have seeped into the evangelical church, these fresh revelations that they say they are getting, they are to be rejected. The Bible is the completed revelation of God, and nothing else is needed because God didn't forget anything. Oh, I missed that one. Should have included it in my book. No, not at all. And so we don't need men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Paul never had the five love languages. He never had a test to analyze your temperament. We don't need all this psychobabble that has walked into the front door of the church. We need men of God who will step into the pulpit of God, preach the word of God. But we got all these effeminate men who are tripping over their own skirts as they walk into the pulpit. God is giving a clear warning here in the last book. Now, in fairness to my charismatic and Pentecostal friends, who say they are receiving new revelation when they speak in tongues or when they get a vision from God or a dream or a word of prophecy. Some will admit, in fairness to them, that maybe what they're receiving is not quite as inspired as Peter or Paul or John. That's nonsense. Because there are not degrees of inspiration. Either God said it or he didn't say it at all. There is no in-between. And so someone speaks in a tongue, and I'm going to the Ukraine later this month because there's a huge problem with this new apostolic reformation movement that is sweeping Western and Eastern Europe. It's in churches like this church, Bethel. Remember that lady who lost her dear little precious child? And for four days, they tried to raise that child from the dead. You talk about gross error. It is sweeping America. It is the fastest growing religious movement today in the world. But I will remind them, listen, if someone speaks in a tongue and someone else over here says, I have the gift of interpretation. There are two separate gifts. 
You take that tongue, you record it. You find anybody else in the world, you choose someone else with the gift of interpretation and let them hear this same tongue and see if they come up with the same interpretation. It has never, ever, ever happened because it is a fake, it is a fraud, it is a phony, it is not like anything what we are reading in the New Testament. And I've given a lot of thought. I did my doctoral dissertation on it. I read over 300 books in my bibliography, and you couldn't pad it. Back then, you had a team of 12 men, and they could say, what about this book on page four of your bibliography? Give me a summary of it. Believe me, trust me, what we are seeing today is not what the Scripture says. And so, in fairness to some of them, they're saying, well, you know, maybe we're just not quite as inspired. There are no degrees of inspiration. That's liberalism. That's what liberal Protestant critics argue for degrees of inspiration. Look, it doesn't matter if it's Joseph Smith or Judge Rutherford or Ellen G. White or Mary Baker Eddy. God has given us a completed revelation, and he warns here, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. It's a warning. What plagues? The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. You see, John taught the imminent return of the Lord. He believed it could happen in his day, that the church could be taken up. And as someone was adding to the word of God, they were proof positive that they were lost and they could not claim the promise that Jesus gave to the church at Philadelphia. And by extension, all the churches, he said, and the book of Revelation chapter 3, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. By the way, there's never been an hour of testing that has come on every single nation of the world. Even the bubonic plague affected parts. But what we are talking about is the hour of testing that Jesus said would be unprecedented in human history during that seven-year period as the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments are unfolded. He will say, if you keep the word of my perseverance, that is marking you as a saved person. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you're saved, you will persevere. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour that has come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Anyone not heeding the warning is giving proof positive that they are lost. And if the rapture happens in their lifetime, they will meet these judgments. And if they die before it, they will still meet God in the eternal judgment as the next verse of Scripture is going to affirm. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues. It's a play on words here. You add to God's word... He'll add the plagues to your life. Those who tamper with God's truth are saying it's not complete. It's sheer unbelief that what God gave us is a good product. Now let's go to the second point, and I'm almost done. And it concerns the warning of subtracting from God's word. It's a serious issue to tamper by adding to God's Word, but it is just as serious to subtract from God's Word. So we read now in verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So the warning of adding is a severe warning, just as the warning of taking away is very severe. It's equally dangerous 
because God warns that this person will have his part taken away from the tree of life and from the holy city. Again, it's a plan word. You take away from God's word, then God will take away from your part of the tree of life. And that is a promise that every child of God will participate in someday in heaven. God will take away his part from the tree of life. Some say, well, this is someone who is saved and lost it. That's ridiculous. John has already affirmed, as we have studied, the eternal security of the believer. He has given throughout the book marks of conversion. True believer will overcome. A true believer will persevere. And a true believer will not add or subtract to what God has given us in his infallible word. God wants people to be saved. He wishes none to perish. But some people, by their unbelief, saying, I reject what God has given me, they will have no part in the tree of life. So Joel Olstein, pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, interviewed at Easter on the CBS Morning News. He's asked by the interviewer why he doesn't preach on hell. He said, quote, people already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. We can find all, we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood or our meetings and be lifted up to be able to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And I think that motivates you to do better. Well, we do not need to feel better. We need to be born again. And if you don't preach on the doctrine of eternal retribution, that sin has consequences, then you see no real need for a Savior. And the silly little phrase that he adds at the end of every service, if you're not born again, invite Jesus into your heart, has nothing to do with the rest of Holy Scripture. But you see, we live in a day of biblical ignorance. And most Christians can't tell the difference. So Larry King is interviewing him. He said, well, how about issues? You know, that the church has feelings about abortion, same-sex marriage. Osteen says, yeah, you know what, Larry? I, I don't go there. I just, you have thoughts, though. Yeah, I have thoughts. I just, you know, I don't think that a same-sex marriage is the way God intended it to be. I don't think abortion is the best. I think there are other, you know, a better way to live your life. But I'm not going to condemn those people. I tell them all the time that our church is open for everybody. You don't call them sinners? No, I don't. In the same interview, of course, he denies that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, that's the real corker, and he gets all kinds of letters, and he says, well, I didn't really mean that. Three times over, you can hear it. I won't take the time to read it. He denies Jesus is the only way to God. You think he would have fixed it? Again on Oprah, a third time. He denies Jesus is the only way to God, my friend. That is a false teacher. Look, if a blind man is headed for a cliff and he doesn't see it, it is unloving if you do not warn him. And it is just as unloving if you do not call sin, sin, because unless you call sin, sin, no one will ever really see their need for a Savior. It is unbelief that takes away from what God has plainly said. And so we have all these politicians running for president of the United States who are perversion-loving, Israel-hating, baby-killing right up till the day the baby's born, every one of them, 
Who would have ever imagined you've got some squirming little baby in the hospital room that survives an abortion and every single one of them says, if you want to kill it, then kill it. I could never put my vote down for such an evil, wicked kind of thought. God's ways are the best ways. And when we take away from what he has said, we are basically saying we do not believe God. Now, let me apply this. Number one, a true believer will not purposely add or subtract from God's word. Now, the tragedy of unbelief throughout human history can really be summarized through these two warnings of adding or subtracting. And all of the cults or false teachers or isms, that's what they're doing. In either action, marks a person as lost. This is a mark that they are lost. They are in unbelief. And I hope you are listening. God has not called people to be editors or redactors of his word. We are not to change. We are not to rearrange. We are not to make it politically correct. We are to be under the authority of Scripture. We are not to be over the Scripture. And so LifeWay Research just this week came out and said 47%, nearly half of all mainline Protestant pastors now support same-sex marriage. What are they doing? They're sitting in judgment of the Holy Scripture. They are judging what God has said to be false. That's a lot of pastors leading a lot of people into hell and again. We should name names. We are to mark them, as Paul did with Hymenaeus and Philetus and as John did with Diotrephes. The Bible is the living seed. It is the imperishable word of God by which someone is born again, and it is the unadulterated truth by which someone will grow up in Christ. And a true born-again Christian would never willfully poison his own food. He would never go against what God has written in this book. Jesus said it's a mark of belief. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. True Christians are keen on God's word. They honor God's word. They love God's word. Like King David, they say, oh, Lord, your law, how I love it. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be subtracted. Secondly, not only will a true believer not purposely add or subtract to God's word, the second application is a true believer should apply the principle of a completed canon. You are, as a saved person, to apply the principle of a completed canon. Let me explain what I mean. If the canon of Scripture is complete and finished, then we must be careful to err on the side of what God has revealed, not on what the culture is saying. So take, for instance, a new label that has come into a number of ministries called the gay Christian. And of course, it's come even into the group that I worked for for 12 years, Campus Crusade, now called Crew. Tim Keller, the so-called Christian apologist, who's having a part in the Revoice movement, says, and he wrote pastors last summer all across the country, telling us that we should make our churches gay-friendly. Look, anybody is welcome here. Anybody can come here. We love prostitutes. We love perverts. We love gay people. We love transgender. I don't care what you are. Anyone is welcome. Not everyone is welcome to be a member. 
conversion must take place. And so Rachel Gilson, who speaks to some 5,000 Campus Crusade staff at Crew 19, she said, and I quote, there is no command in Scripture to be straight. There is a command to be faithfully single or to be faithfully married. And so you can do either of these without being straight. Now, she's the director of theological development for the Northeast for the crew ministry. And when she spoke at a Christmas conference to a large body of students, she said that God hates divorce. And because God hates divorce, a lesbian couple, quote, may stay married if they are celibate. Listen, when she says the Bible does not call us to be straight, that's patently false. Because Romans 1 calls homosexual behavior a degrading passion, unnatural, against nature. Now, even these parachurch ministries and these local church ministries, what are they doing now? They're, they're, they're saying that if you're converted <clears throat> and you have same-sex attraction feelings, you can embrace those. That's the revoice movement that is coming into the PCA. That's Sam Attlebury that's walked in the front door and infiltrating some Southern Baptist churches. That you can embrace these feelings. No, they're not to be embraced. To merge the thought of being a gay Christian is blasphemous. So Crusade called me two weeks ago. They said, Pastor Carl, we want to come in and <clears throat> present to you and your church the Crystal Award. The Crystal Award? Yes. Because since you've been the pastor of the church, Community Bible Church has given over $1 million to Campus Crusade. I had no idea we had given that much. I said, I don't want you to come in. With the president, Steve Douglas wants to come in and give it to you. You can mail it. I said, until you clean up some of these areas. Now, listen, every crew staff, as far as we know, and I'm getting ready to survey every single one of them, are solid people, and there are thousands of good people, and a lot of them are afraid for their job as they're whistleblowers and saying what is going on behind the scenes. But I said, you don't clean up your act. You're not going to come in and present some award to me. That's like me giving credence to this organization. And I know what you're going to do. You're going to use me to raise funds. Here's a guy who came to faith through crew. Here's a guy who worked for 12 years. Here's a guy whose church gave over a million dollars. I said, not on your life. It's very heartbreaking. I mean, why don't we call ourselves lesbian Christians? or bisexual Christians, or transgender Christians, or fornicating Christians, or prostitute Christians. Listen, when someone comes from that background and they're truly converted, it doesn't mean they can't struggle with those feelings, but because they are a new creature in Christ Jesus, they don't say, I embrace these feelings. Just like heterosexual lust is wrong, I hate these feelings, and God is a new creature. I want you to change me, and I want you to bring me under the sanctifying power that the Spirit of God brings. But to embrace this kind of thinking, like some crew leaders are doing, they need to be fired. They need to be fired. They need to 
be thrown out of the organization. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that people who live this way have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. I was pleased when Lifeway Books took Jen Hatmaker off as one of their leading authors, and she made millions of dollars in the backs of evangelicals. But she said this, it is high time Christians opened wide their arms, wide their churches, wide their tables, wide their homes to the LGBT community. From a spiritual perspective, since gay marriage is legal in all 50 states, our communities have plenty of gay couples who, just like the rest of us, need marriage support and parenting help in Christian community. They are either going to find those resources in the church or they are not. Again, she writes in another article, this is a fact, thousands of churches and millions of Christ followers faithfully read the scriptures and with thoughtful and academic work come out to different conclusions on homosexuality and countless other issues. Godly, respectable leaders have exegeted the Bible and there is absolutely not unanimity on its interpretation. There never has been historically. Christian theology has always been contextually bound and often inconsistent with itself. An inconvenient truth we prefer to selectively explain. Not on the moral issues. For 2,000 years, for 6,000 years with Jewish history, there has been one view on this LGBTQ lifestyle in that it is wrong. Yet Beth Moore comes out just a few weeks ago in reference to this author, and she says, it was a blast, it was indeed a blast to be a guest on her beloved, on my beloved friend's uh, podcast for the love Oh my gosh, Jen Hatmaker and I laughed our heads off through the years, and also we have shed tears. If you don't want to love her, do not ever, 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 ever get to know her. Girl has the most honest, the goodness, world's best personality, and will love you to no end through thick and thin. Jen, I love you dearly. I am so unworthy of your words, but I'm thankful to God that you see me through the eyes of grace. Thank you, my friend. Has Beth Moore never read Romans 16, 17? I suppose she doesn't want to obey that any more than she wants to obey 1 Timothy 2, 12, where many a Sunday she is in a church taking the role of a pastor. Recently, the president of the largest Protestant evangelical denomination said that when we are dealing with transgender people who come into the church, that we need to use, quote-unquote, pronouns of hospitality. He said, and I quote, if a transgender person came into our church, came into my life, I think my disposition would be to refer to them by their per preferred pronoun. So if Patty wants to be called Pete, and if he wants to be called she, we're supposed to do that. I think Jesus would simply say, have you not read that he created them male and female? I hope you know there is absolutely no such thing as a transgender person. When God created you, he either made you with XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. He didn't make you with XXY chromosomes or XYX chromosomes. It is always loving to speak the truth rather than to give some affirmation of someone who is suppressing the truth. Transgender behavior is the ultimate expression of saying, God, my creator, I reject the way you made me. I want someone to change my body. Referring to a person 
who is biologically male as she or her is a lie. It is speaking a lie. It is not speaking the truth in love. And it's enabling, it is condoning their wickedness. And God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, period. Third and finally, a true believer should embrace the sufficiency of God's word. When I went into the ministry 40 years ago, the battle that was raging concerned the inerrancy of Scripture. Today, the battle is over the sufficiency of Scripture. That is to say, is God's Word enough to reach the lost, to grow the saved, or do we need something else? And so Bill Hybels and Rick Warren jettisoned expository preaching for seeker-sensitive services. We're way past that now. And what it has led to are churches that are questioning the sufficiency of Scripture. So, you know, if uh, you were a modern pastor, we might black this whole place out and we'd have smoke coming and we'd have a rock band and because that's how we're going to win the loss. Yeah, you'll win them. You'll win them into the kingdom of hell and not into the kingdom of God. Listen, we live in a day where there's a lot of theological mischief, where the sufficiency of God's Word is being denied. And so we hear to all these people, you know, God spoke to me. God told me to tell you this. Let me tell you the vision and the dream that God gave me. What are they saying? They're saying the Scripture is not sufficient. We need something else. And it is sufficient. And if we do not recognize it, this, the churches in America will go into total apostasy. They may anyway, because we may be in the final chapter. But listen, I don't know what the rest of the country is going to do, but I can tell you what this pastor is going to do. <laughs> I'm going to preach the word in season and out of season. I would rather die than do some of the weird things that pastors are doing today. You don't evaluate your spirituality by experience. Let me ask you a question. What theological group does the following best describe? Being slain in the spirit. You know, that's when people fall over. Prophesying or speaking new revelation. Erratic jerking and shaking. Uncontrollable laughter. Speaking in tongues. Miraculous healings. What group would that best describe? Most of you would probably say, well... Charismatic Pentecostals, maybe the new apostolic reformation movement, the world faith movement. In that sense, you'd be right, but you would be equally correct to say a Hindu. Because Hinduism does the exact same things. And you can put side by side what is going in the Kundalini Hinduism movement and the charismatic movement, and there is absolutely no difference at all. That should tell you something. That should put you on alert as to what is really happening in this day. What is the source of these experiences? It doesn't matter how real the experience is. Your experience is not authoritative. Your experience must be brought in submission to the Word of God. Paul will say, do not exceed what is written. And that's what we have today with the Stephen Furtick's and the Joyce Myers and the Beth Moores. They are exceeding what God has written. 
God has given us his word, and it is sufficient to equip us for every good work, Paul will say. It is a settled and sealed deal, and we do not have to add or subtract to it. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus is your Lord, he loves you. Christ died for you. And if you will change your mind about sin and how you're going to be saved, and come put your faith where God put your sin on a bloody substitute who is raised from the dead, he will forgive you. He will put his spirit within you. He'll write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when you die or when he comes back, he will take you there. Now, our Father, we thank you for the one who alone can forgive sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you said, the warning you have given us as a church. Lest someone come in unannounced, unsuspected, and try to draw away disciples of Christ. Our Father, may we learn this book, may we put our head in this book, for the Lord of God, the Word of God is your God-breathed Word you have spoken. Father, I pray today for someone here who is unsure that heaven is really their home, and I pray today that they might call upon Christ in faith, for you promise whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help them to say, Lord Jesus save me, and help those of us who know you to guard our own hearts and thoughts in these days of apostasy and to bring them in subjection to the truth of the book that you have admonished us to learn and to meditate on day and night. And we ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And somebody you hear this morning, maybe in recent days, maybe this morning you said, Jesus, save me. You've never made it public. I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you've not been baptized as a symbol of your faith. Some of you are in Grays. Some of you are in Graniteville or in the Hilton Head Bluffton campus, and you have a decision to make. This is your opportunity to leave your seat and come to the front row of the auditorium that you're in. And you're coming for some will be saying, I'm unashamed that Jesus has saved me. For others, I want to obey him in baptism. For still others, I need a church home, and I believe this is where God is calling me. So if you have a decision, step out now and meet me here in the front.